Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 today. You know, some people are just way too judgmental. I can tell just by looking at them. Why are tall people so judgmental? Because they always look down at everyone. Whenever I speak to religious people about my beliefs, I receive a lot of judgment. It seems that Jesus is the only one who truly accepts me for who I am. (laughs) And we'll conclude with that one today as we get into our passage that is going to deal with judgmental attitudes and harsh criticism of other people. That's where Jesus is going today. This part of the Sermon on the Mount is really going to deal with how we treat others. In fact, I've called the message, How to Treat Others. It's very simple today. So far, we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount the sort of attitude that believers are to have in the Beatitudes, the fifth chapter of Matthew. You remember, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness' sake, and so on. We also learned that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember that, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20? Your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so what that meant is, you know, our spiritual disciplines, the way we live our Christianity, it's between, it's it's not that we're going out and doing it for the praise of man, like the scribes and Pharisees did. They interpreted the law in such a way where they said, well, hey, I've never killed anybody. But what the law says is, have you ever in your heart been angry at your brother? Because you're guilty of that sin. But the way they interpreted the law was all externals. And the way they did their giving, praying, and fasting was also you would notice. And Jesus says that you need to have a righteousness that far exceeds that. That righteousness uh, we were, you know, we've learned carries over even into the area of how we understand material wealth, right? Um, we're not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, you cannot serve God and money at the same time. And we examined that, and you can't serve God and anything else at the same time. The way we're created is we have a master. Can't have two masters. Nobody can have two masters. He'll hate the one. He'll despise the other. He'll love the other one. It's a mess. Now, we also learned that Jesus gave us this command. He said, do not worry. Do not worry about your life. He gave us that very helpful command. It wasn't a suggestion. He was saying, you know, if you, if you think about it, um, you know, you don't really need to worry. No, Jesus said plainly, do not worry. And then he gave us this vivid illustration, right, of the birds. He says, look at the birds. God takes care of them. Look at all those flowers out there. God brings these things, and they're so beautiful. You're worried about clothing? Look at how God does it even with flowers, right? Now we come to a section in which Jesus tells his followers how to demonstrate the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees when it comes to the human relationships. God has called us to demonstrate righteousness to those around us. To do so, we are to refrain from hypocritically judging others. Instead, we are to treat them as we want to be treated. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. 
Judge not, that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and based on your grace, based on the blood of Christ, we couldn't even talk to you. We can't come into your presence but through the blood of Christ. Lord, as we approach your word today, difficult subject, but we do ask you, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in the scripture, that you would help us to see our Savior, and that you would teach us exactly what it is that you have for us here to learn today. And that we might not be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but that we would be doers of the word. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. To demonstrate the righteousness in human relationships that Jesus requires, there's four things in this passage that we need to do. Number one, is we need to do this by refraining from judging, using spiritual discernment. We need to persist in prayer, and we need to model the message. So we need to refrain from judging. We need to use spiritual discernment. But in order to do those things, we need to make sure that we're persisting in prayer. It's impossible to refrain from judging and use discernment and do these things as Jesus wants unless we persist in prayer. And then maybe one of the most important things, I guess you can't really rank them, but as Christians, we need to model the message of the Bible. It's not just knowing Scripture. It's modeling it. And so that's where we're going today, those four points. We need to, first of all, refrain from judging. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged, and the measure you use it, it'll be measured back to you. Now, this is possibly the favorite verse of the unbeliever, isn't it? You talk to them and you say, hey, I'm concerned about your lifestyle. You know, you're doing things that God forbids. Don't you judge me, right? Maybe also the favorite verse of the false teacher, right? 
Thou shalt not touch the Lord's anointed. No, 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 no. I can examine your doctrine. Paul, the apostle, called out Hymenaeus, Alexander. He called them by name and questioned their doctrine, right? So possibly the favorite verse of the false teacher, the, you know, the hypocritical Christian that's living in sin, that doesn't want to hear it, that doesn't know what their Bible really says. So Jesus is not forbidding judging altogether, right? You say, how do you know that, Adam? Well, look at verse 6. He says, don't give what's holy to dogs and cast your pearls before swine. Would you not have to make some sort of judgment to determine who are the dogs and the swine, right? Even look at verses 15 through 23 of this chapter. He says, beware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruits. Well, how will you know them? By their fruit, without judging their fruit. You'll have to make some sort of judgment, right? Uh, Matthew 18, 15. Jesus uh, says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, you would need to make some sort of judgment to determine that your brother was sinning before you could go tell him of his sin, right? John 7, 24, Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 there's an issue of church discipline. You remember the church in Corinth, the guy was, you know, essentially sleeping with his stepmother and everybody in the church was like applauding about how forward of thinking they are, how progressive they were. And Paul says, you ought to mourn. And he says, you ought to put this guy out of the church, right? And then Paul said in another section, he goes, I didn't tell you to go out of the world, right? But he says, and then he, in that whole section there, he says that you are to judge, the church is to judge those who name the name of Christian. If you go to a church, what Paul's saying is the church leadership, people are to judge and to look at your lifestyle. And then if you're living in a lifestyle that's contrary to the Bible, um, it's through the scriptures you're to be warned about it. And eventually there's a, there's a chain that you go up through. And eventually if you don't repent, you're asked to leave the church. We've had to do that with people, you know, rarely, rarely. I mean, it's only happened once in eight years, but twice, kind of. So the point is, is Jesus isn't forbidding judgment altogether as we can tell from the examples I just gave you. The command doesn't prohibit believers from judging heresy, sinful behavior, unrighteous living. And it's certainly not telling people to stop using biblical discernment. Rather, Jesus forbids a harsh, critical, fault-finding, judgmental attitude. That's what he's condemning. You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day they played God over others. They sat in the position of judge over others, and they thought they were the ones that were going to determine, you're in sin, you're not in sin, here's the judgment that you deserve, here's the, you know. And they were judging the motives of people's hearts. It was very common for them. Jesus is condemning a critical spirit, a judgmental disposition, dialed in on the shortcomings of others and their flaws. Judging the motives of other people's hearts, right? It's the sort of attitude that's constantly pointing out the flaws of other people. Here'd be an illustration. Oh, hey, I heard that, uh, you know, so-and-so's going to church now down the street, you know, and so we're glad she's going to church. Oh, yeah, that's great. She probably likes that church because it's watered down and she wants to hide out. You know what I mean? It's that sort of attitude. Oh, that guy cut me off when he was driving the other day. He must be some sort of idiot, right? 
uh, the server messed up my order. Oh, she's just totally incompetent, right? And someone doesn't practice their faith like you do. Oh, they must be backsliding. You know, they must be carnal. They're a carnal Christian, right? Someone is late. Oh, they're definitely disrespectful, and they don't care about the time of other people, right? It's that sort of attitude, critical, harsh to make judgments and pretend that we know the motives of other people. Look at verse 2. So we're to refrain from judging. And then look at verse 2. Here's some good motivation to refrain from judging. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it, it'll be measured back to you. Now, Luke's parallel teaching of this is instructive. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 38. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. What a cool little section of Jesus' teaching. What he's saying is when we judge others, we are setting the standard by which God will judge us. Think of that. When we judge others, we are setting the standard by which God will judge us, right? Now, there's a little bit of debate on when he says here, judge, you know, well, is, are we talking about God judging based on this standard that we're judging others with? Or are we talking about other men? Because it's certainly true in this regard with other men, right? With, with other humans. It's certainly true that if I'm always harsh and unforgiving and condemning, you're probably going to give that back to me, right? When I need forgiveness, when I need mercy, if you're a harsh, critical person, uh, you know, and it comes time to where you need mercy, um, maybe people aren't going to give it to you. Now, that is certainly true. Looking at it from the angle of we're setting up the standard of how God will relate to us and judge us. Do you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for what? Yeah, so... Right, so you're merciful, then what do you get from God? Right. How about Psalm 18, verses 25 through 26? Listen to this. Listen to what the psalmist says. This is an interesting passage. Maybe you're familiar with it. Psalm 18, verse 25 and 26. Listen to what the psalmist says. He's talking to God. He says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. That's like what we just talked about, right? He says, with the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You see, what God is saying, what the psalmist is saying is God, in some way or another, relates to people based on how they are relating to him and to others. So when you judge others... You're setting up a standard by which God will judge you. For instance, if you're not merciful to other people, according to what this psalm said and according to what Matthew chapter 5 said, will you receive mercy? No. If this isn't a good motivation to be merciful to other people, right? doesn't take much to go and point out the flaws of people. It doesn't take much character to do that. 
But it does take character to be long-suffering and to be grace-giving and to be merciful to people. And I'll tell you what, if, if I'm going to fall off the horse on one side of another or the other, if I'm going to fall off on the, on the side of being too grace-giving and too merciful or not merciful enough, well, which side of the horse do you want to fall off on, right? I'd rather give people mercy because I need mercy. I need so much mercy from God. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you deserve, right? Now, grace is different. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, right? Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, so I need a ton of mercy from God. I don't want him to give me what I deserve, right? And so God says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus said here, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. You like to cook, right? You got a measuring cup. The measure that you use it, you know, it'll be measured back to you. So somebody sins and you pour out a gallon of judgment on them. Well, you see, I want to be merciful to people. Now, you must judge your own sin first to help others with theirs. Now, verse 3 says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank in your own? Now, this probably would have drawn some laughter out of Jesus' listeners. This is such a funny picture of hyperbole here. What he's saying is, in this illustration, the speck in your brother's eye, it represents the small inconsequential faults and sins of a person. And the plank, uh, you know, represents the large sins of your own. And so it's like what Jesus is saying is, how is it that you can see the little faults of other people, but you can't see this big glaring sin in your own life? How, how is that? And then he says, um, how can you say to your brother, verse 4, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye. See, see what, the, what the guy's doing here? He's trying to remove the speck. He's trying to help is what it looks like. This is what it looks like in the church today. I'm just trying to help. Oh, okay, so you're going to help me by removing the inconsequential little speck in my eye, but you've got this. Have you ever seen a house with a vaulted ceiling? And you know what they do with a contractor where they're going to make a vaulted ceiling? You know, like they convert a house. They bring in a huge, massive beam across the whole thing that everything supports on. It's like, you know, you know, massive beam. And that's the illustration here. Speck, little piece of sawdust versus this massive beam, right? Now, it is important to get the sawdust out of your eye. That could be a problem, right? But do you want somebody to take the sawdust out of your eye that can't even see because they've got a huge support beam? in their own eye. Imagine that. You're going to the eye doctor to get some surgery. You're kicked back in the chair, and you're sitting there, and the doctor has got this, he's got the scalpel, and he's coming down, and your eyes propped open. He's got the, the razor-sharp blade, and he's just about to touch your eyeball. And you think, you know, I don't know if this is such a good idea, considering the plank that's coming out of this doctor's eye, <laughs> you know? Think about it. 
Or, or even, you know, even maybe funny, you're sitting there, scalpel just about to touch your eyeball, slice it, right? And the doctor tells you, oh, I'm going to do surgery on you, but I'm blind. <laughs> Need better insurance. Unfortunately, this is a description of many Christians today. They're pointing out the flaws in others while they're overlooking the prideful, self-righteous, self-centered, critical spirit and other sin in their own lives. What should they do? Look at verse 5. Jesus says, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus is saying it's good to help people remove specks out of their eyes. We want to help others with their sins. We want to. In fact, we're commanded to, as the church, we're commanded to do that. If you're a parent, you're definitely charged by God to help your kids with their sin. You're to help them confess their sins and to grow as responsible, good Christians. You know, we're called to do this. We're called to help people with their sin. But first, we need to take the plank out of our own eye. There's a little bit of application there. First of all, where Jesus says the word hypocrite, we can get some application out of that word. What does it mean? It means an actor on a stage. And so what these Christians are doing is they're acting like they're helping, right? They say stuff like, oh, I just have a prayer request that I want to share with you about this person. And then they, they proceed to gossip about the person. And we've all heard that stuff. And there are gentle ways to stop that. Uh, you could say something like, I'm very uncomfortable when we talk. You know, let's just get them involved if we're going to talk about them. But they pretend. The hypocrites pretend. They're actors. And they go around and they say, I just want to tell you about this sin that's going on in this person's life. And it's like, oh, okay, um, The hypocrite needs to realize that God sees through their act. They pose as if they're helping people, but all they do is point out flaws and talk. They never get down and wash feet. You never see them engaged in a ministry, being spent for the Lord. You never see them engaged in ministry, ever. But you do see them engaged in gossiping talking about people's sin, pointing out the little inconsequential things in somebody's life when they don't realize how prideful and self-centered they are in their own life. Planks have a blinding effect. So first of all, stop being a hypocrite. Stop doing what it says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, Paul says that people that measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. So those that are blind to their spiritual condition, the reason that they are is because they're continuously comparing themselves to other people rather than comparing themselves next to Jesus Christ, right? The standard for righteousness is not, you know, Jeff, right, or me. I'm not the standard of righteousness. And if you compare yourself to other people, That'll perpetuate spiritual blindness because you can always find somebody that you think you're, you're better than them, right? Or you can always find people that you think are better than you. That's why we're not even to engage in gauging ourselves next to other people. We're to gauge ourselves next to God. Now, if we do that, what happens? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips surrounded by people with unclean lips. Depart from me. I'm an unclean man. That's the natural reaction till the person has come to that place in their life. They don't even understand the gospel. No one can continue in a critical spirit fault-finding if they have a true understanding of the gospel, right? 
And you have to have a true understanding of the gospel to even be saved. So you do the math on that one. I'll do the math on that one, right? If I don't understand, see, critical spirit accompanies a person. A person that has a critical spirit does not understand how bad they are. They don't get it. They don't understand how they are a person of unclean lips, like Isaiah says, woe is me, depart from me, I'm an unclean man. They don't get it. They don't understand that all of their works before the Lord are as filthy rags. They don't get that. They don't understand what Jesus says when he says, I came for the sick, not for the righteous, because they're self-righteous. And you can't continue in a critical, fault-finding judgmental spirit, and have an understanding of the gospel, they just don't go together, right? How can I judge you when I understand that the only reason I'm standing here breathing today is because God, by his mercy and grace, didn't just wipe me out, you know? Because that's what I deserve. I've lied and cheated and stolen and done all these things and failed to do the right thing, and by God's definition, the wages of sin is death. I deserve death. And so I'm standing here today assured of my eternity in heaven, sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, only because of his grace and mercy to me. So who would I be to judge somebody else? See, when people rank themselves next to other people, they look at the junkie on the street, on the corner, and they say, that person's worse than me, right? They look at the guy that's in the newspaper because he beat up his wife and molested his kid, and they say, that person's worse than me, right? They look at the alcoholic that sold everything, you know, and stole from his family, and he's on the street, and they say, that person's worse than me. But a Christian that understands the gospel looks at all those people and says, that's a reflection of me. We're all like this in some way or another. You might be uncomfortable with that today, but let me ask you, do you know the gospel? Because that's what Christ said. He says, all have fallen short of the glory of God, Right? The guy that's addicted to pornography, the woman that's addicted to spending money on frivolous things, whatever. Everybody is the same. The guy that's addicted to his job, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And so once we get on that level playing field, where Jesus Christ be the only magnified, exalted one there, he's the only one that's exalted. And when we're all on that level playing field of sinners in need of mercy, right, saved by grace, we stop looking at people and judging them and being critical of them. See, it's only when you ask the Lord to put the gospel in your heart that you start growing as a Christian. When you say, get this in my heart, Lord. Help me to see myself as I truly am. Help me to take the plank out of my eye. He will do that. Thankfully, he doesn't show you all of your mess at once. We ought to demonstrate righteousness in human relationships. We do this by refraining from judging. Now, the next thing, we need to use spiritual discernment, though. And I think Jesus puts this in there to balance his teaching because lest you would think that judgment means just throw all discernment out the window and everything goes, then Jesus adds this next thing. You know, there are two errors in the church that I've seen in my short 43 years on this planet and however many I was coherent and able to make any assessment. Two errors in the church. You either have churches filled with hypocritical, judgmental, um, out-of-touch people, you know, 
Or on the other side, you have everybody with no spiritual discernment and just everything goes and we need to be accepting of everybody's lifestyle and we need to do things that the Bible clearly tells us not to, but let's just chuck all discernment for the sake of unity. And so those are two major errors that are facing the church in 2021. You know what's interesting is you don't fall into any of those two errors if you study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole Bible in context with the determination that you're going to obey it. You don't fall into those two errors, you know. And so to balance his teaching, Jesus then goes to verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. So Jesus, you say, do not judge, and now you're saying, I need to make a judgment. Who are the dogs and who are the swine? Those terms were used for pagans in those days. Dogs they're not like my dog, like he's cute and lovable and he sleeps with his head on the coffee table and with his body on the couch. <laughs> it's, it's cute. They're not like that. Uh, in Israel at this time, dogs just ran everywhere. They were wild and they were scavengers and they would notably snarl at kids and bite them. And even if you fed them, you know, they'd bite the hand that fed them. And it was a common thing. So to call somebody a dog, uh, you know, it was a bad, it was a derogatory thing. It's derogatory now, I mean, too, but... Even a little different context there. And then swine, uh, unclean animal as far as the Jews are concerned. But the idea here is, is that swine, I don't know, I grew up on a farm and I raised pigs. And I will tell you, when I had pigs, I had five of them. I named them after Guns N' Roses. I did. Okay. Uh, and so uh, the, the black one was Slash because he had black hair. And Yeah. And uh, so the thing about pigs is they're not very discerning, right, when it comes to what they eat. They don't really care. You could throw pigs like an alarm clock, you know, an old spare tire, your rubber boot, just slop it all in there. They have no appreciation for things of value. It's all slop to them. A woman without discretion, the Bible says, is like a pig with a gold ring in its snout. Right? No appreciation for spiritual things. Right Now, that's what he's saying here. You have to be discerning with sharing what is holy. No doubt he's talking about the gospel of the kingdom, the spiritual riches of the Bible, of the word of God. Now, this does not mean that we should stop giving the word out to unbelievers, right? I don't want you to think that. And it also does not mean that we should go around and start classifying everybody as dogs and swine, right? Have you ever heard those Christians like, the, the Christian will give you this testimony about how they were witnessing, and they'll say, oh, I was witnessing the other day, and nobody wanted to listen to me for some reason, and it's like, they're all a bunch of dogs and swine, so I moved on to the next place. And it's like, no, that could have just been because you're a judgmental jerk. Could have been, you know. Most times that's the case. And so we don't go around and just label everybody either. What he's saying is ultimately, you know, we have to understand we don't, uh, force Christianity on people. We don't force Christianity upon people who cannot value it and will have none of it. We need to be discerning and judge wisely when it comes to who we share with. And uh, you ask yourself questions, you know, when you're discerning with people. Are they open to the gospel? When I talk about spiritual things with them, what kind of reaction do they have? Do they instantly close off? Do they get defensive? And so what he's getting at here, you know, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you in pieces, is a wise person sees danger and they hide themselves from it, the Bible says. And so 
there comes a, a stand, there comes a point where you're just cheapening the gospel because you're sharing it with mockers and you're taking spiritual things and sharing it with people that uh, you know have predetermined in their heart they're going to have none of it and they're going to be hostile towards you. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You know, don't judge people hypocritically, right? And be, but at the same point, at the same time, don't throw all discernment out the window, right? You have to understand who's a false teacher. You have to understand who uh, wants nothing to do with the gospel, right? You have to understand who's going to, you know, mock you and hurt you. And here's, here's a good reason why. Because Satan wants Christians to be distracted, right? There are some Christians that could be very useful if they would stop taking the gospel to the same people over and over again that don't hear them, want nothing to do with it, and that they would actually get out and start sharing the gospel someplace else. Just spend, just spend a little time going and giving it to other people too, right? Because there are people out there that are receptive, but the enemy would love to get Christians tripped up spinning their wheels with people that aren't receptive, right? When there's a whole bunch of people that are, the harvest is great, I tell you, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest, right? Some of the laborers are all tripped up with the dogs and the swine, right? One commentator says, but when antagonism comes, take the pearls to the poor in spirit, not the pig in spirit. No. We must demonstrate righteousness in human relationships. We do this by refraining from judgment using spiritual discernment. Now, we need to persist in prayer in order to do this, right? Don't we need God's wisdom to understand who and where and when? Like, we need, we need his wisdom. And that's what he says, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you, and seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The commentators debate on, is this passage go with this context or not? You know, because it seems like Jesus just brings in this treatment on prayer when he just got done with this other stuff, and then the golden rule follows it? Well, if it doesn't belong in context, it still is a good standalone lesson on prayer. I tend to believe, and when I study the Bible, and you should do this too, you should always ask what is the context and how does this fit in context? You should always try to think through this uh, to the point, ask the Lord to show you and, and read commentaries until you f- find somebody that keeps it in context and compare and contrast and see if you think it really belongs there. I think if it is to be held in context here, then it's just like I said, in order to live like this, we need to ask the Lord, we need to seek the Lord, and we need to knock. We need to be persistent in prayer in order to have the wisdom that's needed to be an effective Christian, not to be hypercritical and judgmental, but yet not to be so undiscerning that we don't uh, know what's going on, right? And so ask and it'll be given, seek, knock. These are all in the present tense in the Greek, and I'm sure you've heard this, right? They could all be, it could be said like this, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, right? And I love the promise in verse 8. Don't you love this promise? Tell me you don't love this promise. Verse 8, for anyone that asks, he receives. For everyone who seeks, he finds. And to him who knocks, it'll be opened. Man, what a promise that God makes, right? Asking. Asking is praying with humility and an awareness of your need. Seek. Seeking is being active in prayer, but being active to pursue the will of God. There are so many times in the Bible that it says, seek the Lord. I found 250 of them. I'm going to read them all now. So just sit. I'm not going to read them all now. (laughs) 
But I will read some. First Chronicles 16, 10 through 11. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Psalm 34, verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. Got a problem with fear? Have you sought the Lord? Psalm 70, verse 4. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you and let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Psalms 105, verses 3 and 4, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. There's so many more of them where God is telling you through prophets, through writers, to seek the Lord. And he says that everybody that seeks will what? You'll find, right? Well, I'm not finding anything. Are you seeking? Well, Be persistent in prayer. Knock and it'll be opened to you. Knock and it will be opened to you. Knocking seems to be speaking of the importance, again, of persistent prayer. It could also have the idea of going out and trying ventures of faith, right? Go around and see where God's at work. See see what he wants to do. See what doors he wants to open. You know, a lot of us, we are very clear when God shuts a door, but we're not always going around and knocking on so many doors to see which ones he wants to open. Ever thought about that? See what he wants to do. Another thing I like about knocking, knocking implies that a door is closed and it won't be opened unless you knock on it. I wonder today how many things God wants to do in my life that he hasn't because I'm not knocking. Ever thought of that? That's what that implies, right? A closed door. It's closed. God wants you to have what's on the other side of it, but you're not knocking on the door, right? Think about this. Um, God's not reluctant. What he's trying to do is he's trying to cultivate a relationship with you by calling you to ask, seek, and knock, to keep on doing those things. And you can be motivated by the Father's goodness in all of this. Look at verse 9. What man is there among you if, he asks a, if his son asks for bread, he'll give him a stone, right? Uh, that'd be pretty low, wouldn't it? You're the dad, and here comes the kid. You know, Dad, Isaiah, give me some bread. Oh, here, take this rock and chew on it. Here you go. <laughs> can you imagine Isaiah doing that to, Le- to Leanne? No, I don't think so. Or, you know, they come and say, oh, Isaiah, we want to have fish. Oh, great, cool. Serpent, ah, snake kings. <laughs> That'd be pretty bad dad, wouldn't it? You know what he says there? That, you know, if you them being evil, and by the way, when Jesus says you being evil, he totally agrees with the doctrine of human depravity. He calls all dads, calls all humans. You being evil, you know how to give your kid good gifts. You delight in doing good things for your kid, I hope. How much more, though, will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? you got to love the times in the Bible where those words show up. How much more? Even you, being an earthly dad, as corrupt as you are, sinful as you are, you still know how to give your kid good gifts. You like to do it. Grandpas do, too. How much more will God Give good things to those who ask him. 
We ought to demonstrate righteousness in human relationships by refraining from judging, uh, using spiritual discernment, and we certainly need to persist in prayer. Now we move on to the last point. We need to model the message. Verse 12 says, Therefore, what you want men to do, do also to them. Therefore, every time you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. And so this one's kind of a mystery. Is it everything in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point? Is it everything um, in just this, maybe the section some commentators think, remember chapter 6 where it started the righteousness, uh, don't let your giving be done uh, for men, right? Is it from there now he's summarizing that? Or is it just that he's summarizing everything said from verse 1 to verse 11 of chapter 7? That's the way I lean. I think that it's um, summarizing the subject of how we treat others, right? And so uh, human relationships. You don't judge people, but you don't throw discernment all out, but you need to be in prayer continuously. But ultimately, let me summarize by saying, therefore, what you want men to do to you, do also to them. Now, this is uh, a principle that was taught by many ancient teachers. Did you know that? Confucius taught a version of this. Um, Hillel, Gamaliel, um, Buddha taught a version of this. But all of them and others taught it in the negative. Do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. But Jesus puts it in the positive. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. You say, there's not a real big difference in that. There's a huge difference in that, right? Isn't there? Okay, a man's beat up on the side of the road, bleeding to death. Okay, well, I won't go kick him while he's down because I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. Fine, I'm fulfilling what Buddha's asked of me, fulfilling what Hillel's said. See a person on the side of the road stranded, their car's broken down. Well, I won't drive by that puddle and splash him. I've fulfilled the law. I've fulfilled the teaching. New person starts at work. Well, I won't gossip about him with the rest of the people fulfilling this law. But Jesus' version of this is, you see the guy beat up on the road bleeding? Go over there, take your money, take your time, take your resources, drop everything that you're doing and help that person. He's your neighbor. right? Um, pulled over on the side of the road, stranded. You don't just drive by and not splash them with the puddle. You drive by and you stop and you help them, right? A new person starts at work. It's not that I won't gossip with them. I may invite them to my house for dinner and get to know them and befriend them and hang out around them, you know, and, and do something positive. Jesus puts it in the positive. That's what he wants Christians to do. That's what the golden rule is. It isn't just sit back and think nice thoughts about people. You know, it's get down and wash feet. Get down and do things. Give of your time, your resources, and your energy to do things positively. Now, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about some of the kids that, you know, maybe when they go through their little crazy phases like some of them are right now, um, you would say, okay, treat people as you want them to be treated. Well, I just want to be left alone. <laughs> well, that's because you're broken, you know. You're broken at this point, and nobody really wants to be left alone. And, you know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> <laughs> they go through that phase, right? But they, you know, but at the at the end of the day, they don't. They just want you to leave them alone. <laughs> they don't want other people to leave them alone, you know. So, uh, you know, but isn't Jesus good? Isn't he so good? Isn't this teaching so great? You know, as a Christian, when you look at needs and you don't do anything about them, you're breaking the golden rule. 
not, you're not doing what Jesus has called you to do. That's sinful, right? I'm not do, if I see a need and I don't go and try to do something, I don't try to treat people as I want to be treated, I'm sinning. I need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. I need to get the plank out of my own eye. For most of us, it's really easy to refrain from harming others, but it's much more difficult to take the initiative and do something good for them. But that's the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. Remember Matthew 5.20? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter heaven. This is what it means to live in a way where your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. They were hypocritical judges pointing out the flaws in everybody while they had a plank in their own eye. Jesus says, you know what? You want to be righteous? Go do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's another way of saying um, what Jesus said. When, remember when he was asked what the greatest of the commandments is? Who knows what that was? When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Every Christian should know this one. Who knows what it was? Yeah, Jill. Yeah, yeah, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And then the second one is like it, is what? And what book does that come out of originally? Leviticus. Good job. What Jesus is saying here, the golden rule, look at what he says at the end of verse 12. He says, and this is the law and the prophets, right? For, for this is the law and the prophets. What he's saying is, the first five chapters of the Bible, or the first five books, I'm sorry, is called the, the Torah or the Torah, and it's called the law, right? This is where you have the teachings of Moses, right? And then you have the teaching of the prophets, right? And Jesus is saying, if you will treat other people as you want to be treated, essentially you're fulfilling everything that the Bible commands, Romans 13, 8 through 10 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, in Galatians 5.14, it says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a way of saying, if you will take a positive action to love your neighbor, love anybody that's around you, meet the needs of people around you, then you're fulfilling what the Bible says. You see the law in the Bible, the do nots, thou shalt not. Law is laid down for the lawless. Unprincipled people need laws, right? Just like a kid. Like kids don't get it, so they need punishment. Right? They need consequences, you know what I mean? They need black and white. If you do this, again, this is the deal. It's because they're kids. They don't get it. They're unprincipled at this point. They're learning, you know, and with good you know, boundaries, they'll, they'll learn. But in general, humans, you know, older adults, right, it's the unprincipled that need laws. You see what I mean? I don't need 
if I, if I understand and I'm following Jesus Christ, or if you are, if you're following Christ and you're walking in the, the golden rule, you don't need to be told don't lie to people because you've already made the determination to be truthful. You don't need to be told don't go and covet your neighbor's possessions because you're glad that they're blessed. You don't need to be told to go, don't go hypocritically judge people because you've committed to bless people, right? And, and to think the best of them, to assume the best about people, to esteem others greater than ourselves, right? So I don't need to be told, don't do this, don't do that, and don't do the other, if I'm positively following what Jesus said, right? He says, if you do, if you treat others as you want to be treated, this is the law and the prophets. And how important is it for us Christians, especially today with so many people looking at us, to model the message? Father, we thank you for your word here today. Thank you for the truths within it, and we thank you, Lord, that um, you've called us to be yours. And Father, I thank you for the mercy that you've given to me in my life, that you have not given me what I deserve. I have no idea where I would be if you gave me what I deserved. But you've given us all mercy richly, and you've given us all grace. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts today. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to make us more like you. Make us loving. I pray, Father, that you would by your spirit, deliver us from a critical spirit. And if there be anybody in here today that would really want your help to have that log removed, that beam removed, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, speaking to their conscience now, <coughs> you draw them, Lord, to lay that beam at your feet. And Lord, would you minister to them that grace and that mercy. Show them how needy they are. Show us how needy we are that we might treat the world around us as you want us to treat it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.